Hi, it's Claire here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I just wanted to let you know that you can find this and loads more advice and inspiration and gear tests all about trail and ultra running on my YouTube channel, Wild Ginger Running. There are training tips, advice from elite athletes, top coaches, nutritious recipes, key exercises, injury prevention information, and tons of trail kit reviewed, from running packs to poles, waterproofs to head torches, GPS watches, and shoes, 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 and did I mention shoes? I've been going for a few years now, so there's a huge archive of content to help you out with your trail and ultra running. To quickly and easily find the information you need, simply type your query into the Google search box and then write Wild Ginger Running after it. Then Google will show you whatever blog posts or films I have on that topic. Give it a try. And if you appreciate listening and all the information that I share on YouTube, you're also very welcome to support me on Patreon, which gets you some additional excellent perks and the chance to win some awesome prizes. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee every month, patrons get discounts, extra films, access to the exclusive Facebook and Strava groups, the chance to ask questions to every live chat guest, plus automatic entry into my monthly competition to win £400 worth of trail and ultra running gear. There are only about 150 patrons, so the odds on a win are way better than the lottery. Interested? Find me at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Thanks for listening, guys. Have fun, enjoy your run, and I'll see you on the trails. There are so many trail running shoes to choose from. How do you decide which is the right one for you? I'm here at my race kit store in Sheffield with Steve Franklin, who's gonna give us all the advice we need to choose the right pair of trail running shoes. Um, the first thing we tend to look at when someone comes in for a shoe um, is, basically is their, their foot shape. Um, obviously we've got to make sure the shoes fit for purpose, but it might be fit for purpose, but be totally the wrong shape for that person. Because if someone's got a foot this shape, there's no point in bringing them out a shoe with a really wide heel because it's just not going to work. Um, and that's the importance of going in, into a store because they'll have several shoes for you to try on in different shapes. If the shoe's the wrong shape, then it's useless. So one of the first things I always tell people is to look at the drop. Can you just explain a little bit about what the drop is, Steve, and why that might be important for some people? Okay, so the drop of the shoe, uh, as simply as possible, is the difference in the height between the heel and the front of the foot. If your heel is a centimetre higher than the front, it's got a 10mm drop to it, so your foot's pitched at a slight angle. Uh, it can affect some people more than others, uh, but it's always worth bearing in mind that when you're looking at shoes. So quite often with a, a slightly lower drop shoe, so something that's basically pan flat, where your foot's heel and toe at the same level, can put a bit more stress on the calf and Achilles. Um, actually, almost vice versa, if you get something with a very high drop, it can put more stress on the knees and the hips. It's not always the case, but it's worth bearing in mind. And then there's the grip. There's everything from super aggressive to not much more than a road shoe style of grip. So, so Steve, what type of grip is suitable for what kinds of terrain? You've got fell running shoes, which tend to have um, quite spaced studs, so the mud sheds well. They tend to be relatively deep as well, and they'll often be slightly kind of pyramidal. Um, so again, they, they basically the, the, that, that tapering towards the end means that the mud releases more easily. Um, so that's a fell running outsole. The other end of the sort of off-road running spectrum is trail running, and you get an outsole more like this. So the studs are closer together, they've got a greater surface area, um, and there's more of them. So if you're doing runs that are uh, on multiple surfaces, so for people who are just getting into it or, or want a really good all-rounder, you go towards something like this. And in the middle, you get shoes, um, probably a bit like the Torrent from Hoka, that basically yeah between the two shoes we've just discussed so they've got a slightly deeper tread than your hybrid shoe but not as deep as your fell shoe the downside to shoot this is if you're going to be on tarmac a lot the tread won't last quite as long um so it's potentially not best for someone who does 50 50 road and trail but if you're more of i don't know a 60 40 split then this is a really good bet and it's going to do better in winter uh, than something like your sort of 50 50 hybrid shoe here so you mentioned the tarmac there. How important is the cushioning in a trail running shoe? This is where having two or three shoes in your shoe arsenal is really good. You can have that shoe that's got 
um, less cushioning and a firmer midsole to give you uh, more confidence on the techie terrain. Uh, and then you might have your shoe with a little bit more depth, uh, slightly softer sole. So if you are gonna go for a slower run, uh, you just want something that's gonna be really kind of um, comfortable underneath the sole of your foot, you might go towards that as well. And then if you really want it, you might have something in the middle for your tempo runs or your kind of slightly longer races um, that aren't too long, that aren't ultras. And what about support? In road running shoes, we see neutral and pronation options, but this doesn't seem to apply to trail running shoes. Why is that? If you were to wear a support shoe, a traditionally supportive shoe that has a firm post underneath the inside of the foot here and you were to run off road, the potential negative side of that is if you were to hit a pebble underneath that very firm patch, it's going to push your foot quite abruptly to the opposite side. Um, and for that reason, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why you don't have so many supportive off-road shoes, along with the fact that it's not a monotonous action when you run off-road. If you're running on tarmac, in the most part you're doing the same step over and over and over again whereas there's a lot more variety to your to, to, to how you move when you run off-road and now to the uppers now i always advise people to go for a trail running shoe that drains water and dries quickly rather than a waterproof shoe so what are your thoughts on that steve basically there's a big hole in the top of your shoe so if you go in a puddle or it's raining it's going down your leg you're gonna get water in your shoe and they don't breathe so well they get heavy and they don't dry as fast a lot of modern shoes, the fabrics we use in modern shoes are technical, um, which means that yeah, they just don't hold on to moisture as well and they vent well, so they, they dry faster. The other thing to bear in mind with uppers is, is kind of tight points and points that won't give so much. So if you've got bunions or funny lumps and bumps on your foot, go into the store, try it on, have a think about the points where they're not going to give, where this bit of stitching is, that's not going to give as much as where this open bit of fabric is. And then the laces, there are two main types, aren't there? So you get these kind of um, quick lace systems that are popular on the Salomon shoes. It's super simple to do up and pull down and you get this lovely little lace pocket that tucks the lace underneath there. I personally feel the benefits of this system are when my hands are cold, I can undo it and do it up. It doesn't unpick if I'm running through heather or bracken. Uh, and if I'm running in snow, then it doesn't ball up with ice. The benefit of this system is you can customize it more than the Boas style. So. Pros and cons. And finally, the weight. Does a few extra grams on your feet really make that much of a difference if they're gonna get caked in mud anyway? If you're doing very long runs, then again, the more time you spend in the shoe, the extra weight, the extra energy that's required to lift it, swing it, is increased. Uh, or if you're running faster. So if you're racing short races, that lighter shoe is gonna make a big difference. But if you're just going out for your, I don't know, morning jog, um, it's probably not worth worrying too much about the weight of the shoe and it's worth worrying more about the fact that lighter shoes are often slightly less durable. Um, so always running in lightweight shoes means you might end up spending slightly more money. Thanks Steve, that's all great advice. I hope that's given you an insight into what to look for in a trail running shoe and some good advice on what features that you might be able to choose from. So head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex and their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect shoe. Or use the info in this film to make your choice from our extensive online range at myracekit.com. Did that make any sense, Claire? So I, I just yes, ran. I that just worked. chunted on. <sighs> Cat! So, always running in lightweight shoes means you might end up spending slightly more money. That's brilliant. Which is great. Do that. Come and buy more shoes. <laughs>
And for that, you obviously don't need a massive pack. So people will tend to go towards a waist belt or a very small uh, vest. The waist belts tend to come in two styles. There's a stylist that you, it's basically a, a tube that you step into, or you can get styles like this that have um, a Velcro strap or a little clasp down here. And these obviously you can change the size with the buckles, whereas the um, tubular belt comes in different sizes depending on your waist size. They're also, if it's a very hot day, actually slightly cooler. Um, the, the, the negatives are there's some people who suffer with, suffer with sort of GI, so gastrointestinal discomfort. Um, so if you've got one of these on that's a little snug, that can sometimes aggravate it. Um, and that's one of things you only really learn, learn by, by using them. You can get um, smaller packs as well. Uh, they're called race vests. So they're quite stripped down. They have a small amount of storage in and often have compartments to uh, store water in as well. Um, the benefits of, of this style is, because it's quite close fitting, you could just take half a bottle of water uh, and not put anything else in it and you wouldn't really know you've got it on. Great, so what about a kind of a couple of hours on a day where you're not sure about the weather and you're going into the hills perhaps? Personally for me, if I was going somewhere for two hours but I knew the area well, I was confident that the weather wasn't gonna get too bad, I wasn't gonna get lost, then I might still go with a bum bag. So I'd just take my waterproof jacket, uh, I'd probably take out a bit of a map with me um, and a few of the spares, which I, if you've got lightweight kit, you can normally get into a, into a bum bag. Um, the downside with a bum bag when you load it a bit more is it can sort of bounce slightly, um, which is where the slightly smaller uh, lightweight vests really come into their own. So these are designed to almost feel like an item of clothing. So you've got maybe a kilo on the front, two half litre uh, bottles of water, and a kilo a bit more on the back. The weight's very well balanced. The other benefit of these packs are you can use the cabling on there and the cinch on the side to take the, the volume out of the pack to compress it down so it won't all bounce around. Um, so you might find that you want a pack that's gonna do everything, well, something that's got this sort of setup really enables that. And if people are going further, running for longer, maybe a more remote mountainside in cooler conditions? If you're going out for multiple hours, maybe somewhere you don't know so well, um, you'd probably be carrying yeah, your spare layers, so tops, bottoms, spare thermal layer. Um, you might have a spare pair of socks in there, spare food, hats and gloves, and, and that's where these, these bigger packs um, are useful. And for multi-day races, like perhaps something like the Marathon de Sable, where you start off carrying a week's worth of food. Elite athletes doing events like the OM, they might be able to get all their kit into a 20 litre pack like this. Um, people like me would probably go for a 30 litre pack because I, I like my uh, niceties. Um, if you're doing things like the Marathon de Sable or uh, multi-day events that are, are abroad, it's so important to go to a specialist store. Um, the southern part of my race at North, down in South End on Sea, has an amazing range of packs that you can use for events like MDS. Um, these tend to be quite sort of specific in, in how they're designed uh, and components on them. A lot of people will use like a 30 litre pack for that to make sure they can get all their food in there, like that, all the mandatory kit that you have to carry. So now we know what size to go for. There are certain features to look out for when choosing a running pack. Firstly, the fit. Steve, how important it is for runners to bring in the running kit that they plan to carry to the shop when they try these running packs on? Often people will come in and buy packs kind of without really thinking about it too much. But if someone calls us before, we'll always tell them to bring down the kit that they're hoping to carry. And that way you can see how it fits in the pack. And if the store has a treadmill, you can get the pack loaded, get on the treadmill, you can have a run. There's no better way of testing it than, than running with a, with a fully laden pack. Um, the other benefit of having it loaded is you can actually see which compartments you can access, like we call it on-the-go storage. You might find that the zip on one pack is in an awkward place and you haven't quite got the flexibility to get to it. So there's no way of knowing until you get the pack on to try it out. Um, or you might find that it sits a little high up your neck and rubs. Um, so coming down to a store with the kit you want to put in it and getting it in there and having a run is an amazing thing to do. And for the women, do you always have to go for a woman's pack if you're a woman? The benefit of, of a, a lady trying on a lady's pack is there. The back sizes are different, obviously the, generally the front loading is different as well, but some ladies will have a bigger bust than others. Um, there are some ladies who are absolutely fine with a gents vest. It's not like you have to have a ladies vest if you're a lady. And I also know some, some blokes who actually find the ladies vest better because they've got a smaller torso. And we've got the Salomon vest here, the loading on the front so the bottles sits beneath the bust and you've got a straw that comes up around the side so there shouldn't be any undue pressure over the front of the chest.
Again, most brands now are bringing out ladies-specific packs. And if you use running poles, it's important to make sure you can carry them easily in whichever pack or waist belt you buy. So what are the different options here, Steve? Again, the brands will tackle poles in a slightly different way and how to stow them. UD have the capacity to put the poles on the front of the packs. Salomon have a custom quiver, a bit like you're going to shoot some arrows. Quite a few packs will have pole storage underneath the back of the pack there. Deciding what's right for you is a question of going to stores and trying it out. If you find a pack that fits perfectly, but it doesn't have quite the right way of attaching the poles, then there's a good chance that just by getting a, a needle and a thread, you can make that pack into the, the perfect pack for you. And then finally, I think the weight is the last thing to consider. Would you agree, Steve? To me, it's more important to get a pack that's comfy with all the right features and durable than quibble over a few grams. Obviously, if there's hundreds of grams difference between packs, that might have, might have more of an impact. But uh, like you said, Claire, knowing uh, the packs that fit well are comfortable uh, it is probably more important than thinking about 25 grams here and there. Great, thanks Steve, that's brilliant. I hope that's given you an insight into what size running pack or waist belt to go for and some good advice on all the features that you want to look for. Head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex and their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect pack. Or use the information here in this film to make your choice from their extensive selection online at myracekit.com. So what I've got in shot is just up to your like mid thigh. Okay. So it's my my best bit, my mid thigh. Yeah, best bit. But, so I've actually got no idea if this vest has this in, but we're going to find out. Extra small, small, medium, large, dependent on your. That's the shop dog who's scaring the postman off. He does woof and skip. <laughs> Shh. In whichever waist pack or pack. Ah. You might be, um, you might have a little bit of paunch there or something. Probably can't use the paunch thing in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's good. There are so many sports nutrition products on the market. How do you choose the best option for training and racing? I'm at my race kit store in Sheffield with Steve Franklin, who's going to give us all the advice we need to choose the sports nutrition that's right for you. So should we start with the bars and the gels and the kind of snack type things? What kind of runs would these be useful for? Most people can probably go 90 minutes of not trying super hard without really needing to take on um, anything but maybe some water. Um, if you're going slightly longer, then it's always good to um, preempt when you might have a slight low. You don't want dips and then energy spikes and then, and then dips. Gels tend to be slightly gloopy, like a syrup almost. Um, bars will be like any kind of bar um, that, that you get. Some are a little chewier, a bit more moist, some are slightly drier. Some are kind of, they're called nude or natural, so they don't really have any sort of um, major additives to them to make them taste of specific things and others are designed to taste like things you like whether it's marshmallow or banana or strawberries or beer maybe as well they do beer gels really important thing with anything nutrition is choosing something that is palatable to you so finding something that uh, tastes good and agrees with your stomach is also really important and then some of the athletes going a little bit further into the ultra distances sometimes if you're doing long events taking normal food it is good too. I love cold pizza. It's something I can always get down me. If I need food quick or energy quick, I probably wouldn't go to pizza. Um, but just remember that you can you can take potatoes or tin of beans. There are other things available than the specific nutrition here. And especially if you're doing longer events, those things are things you can normally always get down you. I mean, my, my toughest worth of advice on that kind of thing is if you find something you like, then try not to like go, go overkill on it because if you have something too much it can then make you uh, start to dislike it quite strongly and then there are the electrolytes to replace the body's salts lost through sweat yeah so obviously if, you, if you're sweating a lot there's an evidence to say that it's good to replace what you're sweating out these basically dilute in water um, they give you a recommended amount of water to dilute them in but you might find that it's too strong still uh, so you can dilute, dilute them down again some people might say that if you don't do it to the exact ratios they won't work very well I, again this is 
personal opinion. I, I don't agree with that. Um, I'd rather have something that I could get in me that's got what I need to get in me than, than something that I, I find too strong or, or, or too sweet. Some of the shakes you get as well, or the powders that are dilutable in water will also have electrolytes in as well as carbohydrates so this is again a naked flavor but you can get flavored versions of of tailwind as well and some of those electrolytes and some of the other products here have caffeine in how is that useful so, i mean caffeine's great isn't it everyone loves caffeine um there's a load of evidence out there just to, to, to basically the, the performance enhancing effects of caffeine there are also negative effects of caffeine on performance so um caffeine is a diuretic so it'll make you go to the toilet more, normally for a number one. Uh, some people, it also has a, a, a secondary um, influence on, the, on your bowel and can make you go to the toilet that way as well. So um, it's always worth, like I said before at the start of this, testing gels uh, to find out what agrees with you and what doesn't. Normally on uh, gel packaging, they will tell you how much caffeine is in it. It's worth just, just kind of checking um, how much caffeine's in things. So yeah, caffeine in moderation has a performance dancing effect. Just make sure it agrees with your system. And then for recovery after those runs and races, what would you recommend? Obviously rehydrating is important, um, but not, not too quickly. Gradually is probably better than getting several litres of water down in one foul swoop. Um, but basically just having a well-balanced meal and, and being aware that if you are doing very long events, that there's a need to basically eat well for several days afterwards um, to make sure you heal and, and recover properly. Um, if you do have specific dietary requirements, um, you probably do know the things that you may be slightly deficient in and to be more careful about getting those into your system. And then there are the various freeze-dried foods as well for those multi-day races like the Marathon de Sable where you have to carry six or seven days worth of food on your back. Um, so yeah, the Southern Store has a really good range of freeze-dried meals, um, it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, for events like MDS and your other multi-day events. Um, they come in all different flavours, different dietary requirements, so if you're gluten intolerant or you're a vegetarian. Um, they're also great because they are designed to give you um, the nutrition uh, and the calories that you need when you're on these multi-day events. So it's so an easy way to count your calories to make sure you're replenishing what you've lost during the day. To make them, in the most part, is just hot water into the bag. Um, sometimes you need to leave them for a little while to cook through, to warm through, but it is super simple. Great, that's brilliant, Steve. I hope that's given you a good idea of what sports nutrition you need for your training and racing. So head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex and their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect sports nutrition. Or use the information in this film to make your choice from their exclusive selection online at myracekit.com. doesn't tell me. Terrible. Oh no, no it does tell me. Um, so, we don't actually do anything like that here, Claire. Oh. Skip the nutrition. <laughs> you eat it really messily. <laughs> and then lick it all up. up. Where are all our tabs gone? <laughs> we've run out of tabs, but we've sold them all because it's warm. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, they're behind me, they're behind me here. Have you ever done one of these, Claire, and you really not like the person you're doing it with? Um, why are you trying to tell me something? I'm curious. <laughs> There's a bewildering array of head torches for runners on offer with different levels of brightness and battery life. So how do you choose the one that's best for you? Well, I'm at my race kit store in Sheffield with Steve Franklin, who's going to give us all the advice we need to choose the right head torch. I mean, how bright does a head torch really need to be for trail runners? They measure light in lumens. Um, the more lumens, the, the brighter the torch. So for most runners, you'll, you'll want a torch that is gonna be around about more than 150 lumens, has a floodlight and potentially a spotlight as well to see ahead. Um, and something that's gonna give you if you only if you have the capacity to charge it on a regular basis, say every night, then you probably want it to be able to churn out 150 to 200 lumens for two to three hours. I'm a bit of a I'm a bit sceptical when it comes to uh, the data that they put out on torches. So ask your friends, ask the shop, people who work in the shop, ask the staff. 
um, and see if see if the uh, what it says on the back of them is is true or not. But you'll, you'll find that yeah, a lot of the knockoff torches do not do what they say. And tell me honestly, do you really need a super bright head torch? Uh, if I'm going out for a steady run at night and I'm not not pelting along, then I I don't need to have this super high-tech head torch that's going to illuminate the whole of Standage Edge. There's a, there's a skill to running with a head torch, getting used to it, um, your depth perception changes, which you don't have these reference points around you, you only you kind of almost changes your, your ability to see in 3D. And there's lots of people out there who've got, who, who might have a worse head torch than you, but, but they can run better than you at night because they're used to doing it. Um, I'm really interested, Steve, in your um, take on reactive lighting. Reactive lighting, it, it's, it's super clever, isn't it? Um, the ability for a torch to react to the ambient light around it and uh, either increase or decrease its output uh, based on how much natural light there is or artificial light that's aiding your, your vision. There are a few cases where the reactive lighting doesn't work particularly well. If it's a very cold night or if there's fog, then the reactive lighting, the light will reflect off fog uh, or your breath and the sensors, they're not smart enough, although they are very smart, to, to tell what's going on and the light can, can flicker. Or if you're running with lots of other head torches or someone with a reflective jacket on, the reactive lighting can um, take that reflection as the light around you and it'll dim it down when you don't want it to. The beauty of all the reactive head torches are you can disable it. You can just turn it off if it's a situation where it's not ideal. But if you are kind of going between street lights and then wooded areas, so if you're running locally through the park, on a road through the park, it's a really great setup in that you don't need to faff about pressing buttons on the top. It'll realise that there's a street light there, dim the torch down, doesn't waste the battery, and then when you go into the woods again, it'll increase the beam. And then let's just go through the different types of batteries on offer. Yeah, your options are your standard AA or AAA battery or like a lithium-ion battery. So the Petzl core battery like this uh, is a lithium-ion USB rechargeable battery. The pros and cons of the two systems, uh, a lithium-ion battery obviously is rechargeable. So in terms of spending money on batteries is more economical. A battery like this will generally give you a sort of relatively consistent output for let's say an hour and then it'll drop off a cliff edge. They'll give you a warning, your, your head torch will give you a couple of blips maybe and say hold on I'm, I'm nearing the end and it'll have a really significant drop in its output. They do have um, a safety setting on them where you'll always get 15 lumens at your head torch to get you home and they'll, they'll stay on that for a very long time. Whereas your kind of AAA batteries, the, the, they'll degrade at a more gradual rate. So you'll start at 100 lumens then you'll go down to 95 and so on and they'll, they'll slowly get less bright. Um, so it's it's you know, it swings around about. So if you've got spare ones of these, then they're probably better. So you get a, a more consistent output. But they do have a habit of just dropping off a cliff edge. There are things like the Actic Core here, which are compatible with both lithium-ion and AAA batteries. So best of both worlds. The other thing that's always worth bearing in mind with your lithium ions is they lose charge over time even if you're not using them. So it's always worth just giving these a bit of a boost before uh, you're going to go out for a run if it's been sat in a cupboard for a while. So those are some of the technical features to look out for, but what about the comfort of it actually sitting on your head and the ease of adjusting those buttons, especially if you're going to be wearing big gloves um, in the winter? So I guess the practical sides of a head torch are um, You've got a headset, so the bit that sits on the front of your head, and then you've got your strap, and then some head torches will also have a, a back set, so they might put the batteries on, on the back of the torch. Um, you'll have the ability to articulate the torch, so you can point it up, point it down. Quite a lot of the, the more modern torches, because batteries are quite light these days, they'll put it all into the front set because it's not that heavy. Checking how it sits, on the front of your head. Um, sometimes you find this with slightly cheaper head torches, the, the articulation um, is basically a bit rubbish. So if you're sort of bouncing around, you'll find it might just flick down. Um, whereas your, your higher basically higher spec head torches will be designed that, that that doesn't happen even over time. How the strap works at the back is important too. So this is a really nice design where it gives you, basically makes it more balanced over the back of the head. And other things to be aware of, if you are going out at night, you might, be, might have gloves on. So 
being able to basically use a torch with a, with a pair of gloves on, so knowing where you're going to press the buttons. If the buttons are too close together and you've got a big fat glove on, it might be totally impractical for you. We tend to have a couple of our own ones we leave out the store, so you can always try them on, have a go with them. In winter, we'll get the brands to send their head torches when we do shoe demos. So you can, it's a really great opportunity to try on four different head torches on a run. You get a warranty with torches. Um, that's what you get from buying from brands like Black Diamond, Petzl, and any of the brands that are, are kind of popular and, and, uh, and well-known. You'll get a warranty. If something goes wrong with it, you can send it back. Because if you buy something off eBay for a tenner or for 20 quid, you, 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 don't, stand, you don't stand a chance. Buy from reptile brands, buy from stores, and you'll get a good service and a good warranty. And then finally, the weight of the head torch. I suppose you've got a balance between the level of brightness you need and the amount of battery that you're willing to carry. Most of the head torches we have here are relatively lightweight units um, because they are designed specifically for runners. The thing to really bear in mind with, with weight is, um, again, how heavy it is in any one place on your head. So if it's got a really heavy front headset, then it might not be very comfortable and it might, it might, sort of, it might bob a little bit. But most of the torches, especially if they use like a lithium-ion battery, these units are super lightweight and, and basically add a matter of grams to the torch. Whereas if you've got three double A's, that is a bit of extra weight there. And it's also worth bearing in mind if you're going out for a long run and you want to have a spare set of batteries and, or even a spare head torch, you might have one that's a little heavier and then you might have a, a backup torch um, that is, I don't know, 50 grams. Uh, it won't churn out as much, but it'll always get you home. Thanks Steve. I hope that's given you an insight into what type of head torch to go for and some good advice on all the features that you might want to look for. So head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex and their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect head torch or use the information in this film to make your choice from their extensive selection online at myracekit.com. Um, are, we, are we doing a sound check now? I don't want to talk and then have to do it again if I don't, yeah. <laughs> if I don't have to. So Claire's just told me this is great if you've got a ponytail, something I don't suffer with uh, all these days, although I did have a ponytail when I was younger. Um, if anyone knows me, they'll probably find that highly amusing. <laughs> or to just visit Skip the Dog, because <laughs> he is beautiful. most qualified member of staff. <laughs> Fully trained staff. He's a great, he's a great listener. <laughs>Waterproof jackets and trousers are all similar but with slightly different features. So how do you choose the best one for your running? I'm at my race kit store in Sheffield with Steve Franklin who's going to give us all the advice we need to choose the right waterproof. When we talk about waterproof jackets, actually how waterproof can you expect them to be? When people come in to buy waterproof jackets from us, um, they tend to have very high expectations of, of how waterproof it is. But you've got to remember that um, the waterproofness of something is, is on a scale um, from things that are totally impermeable, like a plastic bag, to a porous fabric. And running jackets are only part way along that scale. Uh, the higher the hydrostatic head, the more waterproof the fabric is. Most running jackets um, tend to be round about 20,000 mil hydrostatic head. So it will keep you dry for a certain amount of time. But if there's excessive wind or pressure pushing that water through the jacket, then like, like a very heavy pack, for example, th then they're not completely waterproof. Um, and if you do want something that's going to keep you dry for, for eight hours on the hill, then you're probably better going towards a heavyweight walking, walking waterproof, because that's what it's made for. These are designed to be lightweight, packable and comfy to run in. And the features on super light gear tend to be pretty minimal to keep the weight down? Most of the lighter weight jackets tend to have reduced number of features. So they'll usually have elasticated cuffs, elasticated hoods, they don't have many pockets on them, but they do pack down to next to nothing. So something like this is going to weigh just over 100 grams and it'll pack down the size of your fist or, or a tennis ball. Um, so very good in terms of um, passing kit checks, if that's what you want to do, uh, and, and keeping you um, dry to a certain extent. Uh, the, obviously, the, the slight negative to the lighter weight kit 
is, as we said before, it's not quite as robust and it's also not quite as waterproof as some of the heavier weight stuff. So what about a slightly heavier weight jacket for more everyday training? Your heavyweight fabrics are something like the Cam Leica from Om here, which is 20,000 mil waterproof. Um, it's a slightly more robust fabric. It's got a little bit of a stretch to it as well. Uh, and it's much more featureful. So you have well pockets, you've got cuffs that will adjust, you've got an adjustable hood. And on the rear of the jacket, you've also got uh, like a, a drop tail or a dropped hem that's also adjustable to stop the jacket riding up. There are some people who would happily go and train in a super lightweight waterproof because they know they're not going to be out for hours on end. It's just an hour run in the Peak District or in the Cotswolds or wherever you train. But if you're going to be going to the bigger hills, you're going to be spending longer, longer outdoors and in potentially more serious weather conditions, it's worth taking a more robust jacket. And is there any difference in the breathability in these different jackets? Um, in the UK, it's relatively mild and it's quite wet. Uh, which leads to you wanting to wear a waterproof to stay dry, but putting that extra layer on is also going to make you warmer and probably sweat more. So th the jackets are designed to be breathable, but inevitably if you've got an extra layer on and it's 15 degrees but wet, you're still going to sweat and the, the jackets aren't able to, to take away that much moisture. So you've really got to kind of be, be kind of re realistic in many ways as, as to um, you're wearing a fabric, it's going to make you warmer. So having the ability to, to vent the jackets, being able to undo your zips, re release the cuffs, pull the sleeves up potentially. In this one, for example, it's a breathable mesh on the inside. I can vent through my pockets, which is a really great feature. Um, many jackets will have, um, actually have vents built into them, which is a really great way of, of, of getting uh, warm air out, uh, if needs be, and allowing air in to keep you less sweaty on the inside. In addition to that, some jackets will have these little neat features like on the front where there's a popper. So you can take un undo the jacket to, to vent it, but you can close the popper on the front so it holds its shape still and won't flap around too much in the wind. And obviously what you're wearing underneath the jacket is super important as well. Most brands would advise that you don't actually wear a t-shirt under a jacket. You don't really want your skin to be touching the, the, the waterproof membrane because uh, as you sweat it'll turn straight to a liquid. Having a super lightweight long sleeve top underneath can help keep the, basically it creates an air gap between uh, the, the membrane and, and your skin, which means there's, there's more chance of getting some airflow through there to allow the moisture to evaporate. And what about the fit? What are we looking at there in terms of maybe slim fits, wider fits and, and women's fit as well? All the jackets will fit differently. Even, even within the gents jackets, you've got things that are slightly, slightly slimmer fit uh, or a slightly more relaxed fit. And again, if you, they are gender specific as well. So ladies have slightly different shape down either side of the body. Um, there's more volume over the front of the chest. The length of the back is going to be different as well. And can we just focus in on the hood for a moment? Are there different hood designs to look out for? With the, um, the slightly more stripped down race type jacket, it is just literally a elasticated hem it comes over the top with a, a semi-stiffened peak. The peaks will come in all different kind of things. Some will have wiring, some will be a, a, a more robust sort of plastic in there as well. Um, when it comes to things like the Cam Leica, there's much more um, customization or the ability to adjust how the hood fits. The, the benefits of that kind of thing are you can, um, you can pull the edges in. When you, are, when you turn your head, the hood would, would, will articulate with you. So I don't end up looking at the side of the hood. It also means that if it's very windy, um, I can keep the wind out and the hood, the hood won't inflate. Um, the downside of these features are, they're, they're basically, they, they weigh slightly more, um, but it's a matter of grams. So if you are after something that's, that's functional, it's worth looking at these extra features you get in the slightly more expensive, but also slightly heavier weight jackets. For probably the majority of people who are gonna be buying a waterproof, these features are, uh, they're really useful. And now to the trousers. What are the most important features here? Waterproof trousers, again, they come in different weights. So the halo pants we've got here for mom are a super lightweight race pants. So they, they lack in some of the features that, that you might like. You'll usually find that the trousers will be articulated at the knee. They're designed to sit quite high on the waist. Um, so the water runs off your jacket and down the trousers and not into your trousers. There'll always be some sort of way of uh, adjusting the um, the lower hem of, of, of the trousers as well. This again, because it's a lightweight trouser, it's a relatively simplistic way of doing it with a Velcro strap. Um, as you get other trousers, other brands will have zips that come up to the half, kind of basically to knee height. 
Some will have clasps on the front or like a stirrup that will go underneath your shoe to stop the trouser riding up. And they also come in different fits. You'll get slim fit and relaxed fit. Always go and try them on again to make sure they, they fit your body shape and, and you can move in them still. So a set of waterproofs is an investment. You want them to last for a very long time. So what can runners be doing to prolong the life of their waterproof kit? Taking care of it is really important. So if you do need to wash it, making sure you wash it in appropriate um, detergent. So when you buy your jacket, there'll always be a little tab on the inside and the website's really informative. So go on the website, see what the brand recommends you wash it in, what temperature you wash it at and how you dry it. Um, you don't want to be washing waterproof jackets in a standard detergent, because it'll wear down the waterproof membranes within it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. I hope that's given you a good idea about what features to look for in your next waterproof jacket and trousers. Head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex. Their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect waterproof jacket or trousers. Or use the information in this film to make your choice from their extensive selection online at myracekit.com. Some of the other jackets will have features. No, I could have sworn it was on that one. So it must be on the older version. And what about the fit? Do you... Mm, what about the fit? What about the fit? If you ask the question again, and I realise you something I would say to people. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you, you need to ask again or just start speaking? No, no, just start okay. speaking. <laughs> oh, we didn't do close-ups of the trousers. It's important to remember that they... No, I thought I said that very well. I'll start that again. What am I going to say? Online at myracekit.co.uk. Ah, no. There are so many road running shoes to choose from. How do you decide which is the best one for you? I'm at my race kit store in Sheffield with Steve Franklin, who's going to give us all the advice we need to choose the right pair of road running shoes. So when someone's looking for a road running shoe, Steve, what is the most important thing that you need to find out first? Finding a shoe that fits the shape of your foot is, is can't, I can't stress how important that is. Um, if you've got a, a broad foot, narrow foot, high foot, narrow heel, very long, big toe, finding shoes that look like the shape of your foot is really important. Shoe fitting is not an exact science. Um, it's a question of the shoe fitter and, and the customer working together to try and build a really good picture to see, uh, to basically try, try and work out what's going to be right for that person. Once we've got the shoes on the customer's foot, we'll get on the treadmill. Um, and this is where we start to look at how people move. The more shoes we get people in, the better idea they're going to have about what was good and what wasn't good. And does the drop matter in a road running shoe? The drop of the shoe again, which is the difference between uh, the height of the heel and the height of the forefoot. So the higher the drop, the bigger the angle of the foot, the, the, the greater the pitch of the foot. A lower drop, and this isn't always the case, can put slightly more stress on the um, kind of calf and Achilles, uh, potentially the arch of the foot as well. And a slightly higher drop can also potentially put a bit more stress on the hips and the knees. But if you are deciding you do want to go towards a lower drop shoe and you've been used to a high drop shoe, it's always recommended that the transition is gradual. Um, the last thing you want to do is um, to change the drop height of the shoe and to end up with a really quite bad injury of the Achilles or calf. Knowing what drop is right for you is trickier um, and that's really a question of, of experience. What about the grip of a road running shoe? Is it really that important? The outsole or the tread isn't quite as important as when you're looking at an off-road shoe. Um, the main things to look out for are um, basically the sort of the amount of covering that you've got over the foam within the shoe. So quite a few shoes will have like a full outsole covering. They might even put a different type of rubber over the high wear zone, such as the heel. Um, so you tend to get blown rubber and carbon rubber. Um, in different places on the shoe. And you also get so some brands to keep the weight of the shoe down. They might be a bit more specific about where they put uh, the rubber. Uh, for instance, some, some of the Hoka shoes, 
they'll basically put the rubber on the heel, which is a high wear zone, uh, and on the forefoot, missing out the sort of the midfoot, which isn't really a zone that gets that much wear and tear. Uh, the benefit of this being it takes a bit of weight out of the shoe, making it slightly lighter. What about the uppers and the laces? Is there much variation there? In the most part, they're, they're not too dissimilar. They will vary in how soft they are. So you get some, um, the GTS from Brooks has quite a nice kind of what we call plush upper. It's also got a very padded heel counter to it as well. Whereas uh, some shoes, shoes that may be designed to be a little bit lighter weight, they might not quite have so much padding around there. Um, or the, the fabric top might be not quite as soft and plush. So yeah, they, they do differ. It's always important to look at um, where sort of the bits of structure have been put, put into shoes. So you can just see in the Salomon shoe we've got here, these strips underneath. So these are designed to sort of reinforce the fabric top of the shoe and to give a better hold of the top of the top of the foot there. Um, so you might find that these strips could be over this portion of the shoe. Yeah, so if you have, say, a bunion, you might want to avoid any sort of undue pressure over that joint. What about the flexibility and the stiffness? Someone who's um, a slightly bigger individual might benefit from a shoe with a little bit more integrity to it, and someone who's lighter weight might prefer a shoe that's got a bit more flexibility to it. They're not hard, fast rules, but they tend to be things like rules of thumb that you can go on. Um, when it comes to deciding what's best and what's not best, this is kind of where using the treadmill is a really great tool. So we can see um, if we put someone in a shoe that's maybe too stiff, they might land on the heel, which is quite normal. The foot might pronate, which again is a very normal motion. We might find that that little bit of pronation is quite rapid and snappy. And so often with, with human movement, if we get these kind of jerky or, or, or abrupt motions, that's often how we kind of create injuries. Um, so we might say, okay, well that shoe when he landed here was really sort of abrupt from heel through to forefoot. So let's try a shoe that's got a bit more flex to it. See if that flex helps give you a more fluid progression through, through the footstep. And that's where our job is when we watch you run and we, and we listen and we try to get the feedback. These are things we're looking for to try and give you these um, smooth, natural and fluid movements to, to, to prevent injuries. And with the midsole, is there a certain thing you should be looking for there or is it different for every person? When it comes to the midsole, which is the bit in between the upper and the outsole, the foamy looking part of the shoe, most midsoles are made up of a um, material called EVA, which is a lightweight foam that absorbs impact and then it sort of relofts uh, to then absorb another impact. Um, but you do get other materials in midsoles as well. A good example would be the Levitate from Brooks. So this is what we call a, a TPU midsole. It's still designed to absorb shock, so it'll compress when you land, but it's got a slightly springier um, sort of characteristic to it and gives you a, almost a bouncier feel. So it's not quite as soft and, and, and plush and gives you a bit more of a kind of um, a peppy feel to it, a bit more bounce off, off the shoe. Knowing which is right for you, uh, going to a store and trying things on is really important here. You might try on something like the, the Clifton from Hoka, which has got quite a soft midsole, and you might put it on and think, oh, it feels amazing, that's the most comfortable thing I've ever, ever run in. But equally, you might put it on and think, oh, it feels, it feels too soft and squidgy. I'm not getting any, any push off the shoe. There are also some brands who have had a totally different take on it. Brands like On, who use what they call cloud technology. So these cloud pods on, on the sole of the shoe are designed to sort of compress when you have your initial impact, and they'll stay compressed throughout the contact phase with the floor, which means that when you push off, you're pushing off through a firmer surface, giving you a really nice force transfer and a powerful toe off. Knowing which one suits your running style, the only way you're gonna know is by going down to a store that's got a variety of shoes, trying the shoes on and getting on the treadmill to, to see which one feels best to you. And how much does weight matter in a road running shoe if you're going to be using it for racing or training? A lot of road shoes, especially the ones that you'll use for your everyday running, so your, your training runs, your morning runs, probably just not for racing in. Gent shoes a size nine would be just under 300 grams and ladies shoes for a size five will sort of be sort of kind of mid 200s. Um, the weight will make a difference. If you are wanting a shoe for racing, a lighter weight shoe will be faster. Uh, less energy to lift the foot up and, and swing it forwards. It's always really important to remember that although there might only be 10 grams difference between a shoe, when it's on the end of a, a long leg, 
that weight is exaggerated uh, and multiplied. So most racing shoes tend to be, this is uh, the Zante from New Balance, tend to be more stripped down, uh, often have a slightly firmer midsole and, and a lighter weight. So the benefits of that are it's just it's easier to swing your foot through. That's all really great information, Steve. Thank you. Um, I hope that's given you an insight into what type of road running shoe to go for and some good advice on the features that you might want to look for. Head to your nearest My Race Kit store in Sheffield or Essex and their fully trained staff will help you find your perfect road running shoe. Or use the information in this film to make your choice from their extensive selection online at myracekit.com. Testing, testing. Shoes, shoes, shoes. Um, but oh, I want to do that all again. I'm really not happy with that. Not happy with that. Yeah, he's a <laughs> skippy. Bed. Go on, bed, bed. Poor. Oh, good boy. <laughs> Hi, it's Claire here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I just wanted to let you know that you can find this and loads more advice and inspiration and gear tests all about trail and ultra running on my YouTube channel, Wild Ginger Running. There are training tips, advice from elite athletes, top coaches, nutritious recipes, key exercises, injury prevention information, and tons of trail kit reviewed from running packs to poles, waterproofs to head torches, GPS watches, and shoes, 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 and did I mention shoes? I've been going for a few years now, so there's a huge archive of content to help you out with your trail and ultra running. To quickly and easily find the information you need, simply type your query into the Google search box and then write Wild Ginger Running after it. Then Google will show you whatever blog posts or films I have on that topic. Give it a try. And if you appreciate listening and all the information that I share on YouTube, you're also very welcome to support me on Patreon, which gets you some additional excellent perks and the chance to win some awesome prizes. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee every month, patrons get discounts, extra films, access to the exclusive Facebook and Strava groups, the chance to ask questions to every live chat guest, plus automatic entry into my monthly competition to win £400 worth of trail and ultra running gear. There are only about 150 patrons, so the odds on a win are way better than the lottery. Interested? Find me at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Thanks for listening, guys. Have fun, enjoy your run, and I'll see you on the trails.